trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. <laughs> Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, <laughs> even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. So again, it goes a little bit back to like, I think singing is trying to teach us every lesson about life. First one being, we got to tune ourselves. You know, that we can't just, the, the delusion is that we wake up in the day and think we can just like plow our way through life. But like this situation, and as you age and the body gets older and the more you put it through, like the more tuning it needs, just like a guitar needs tuning. And so I think by, by singing and by exploring the whole range of our voice, that's exactly what we can do is like tune our bodies. And I mean, that's why like chanting is so good and, you know, ohm and just any vocal anything. I am all for anything vocal. Sing Aretha Franklin, sing Hare Krishna, like whatever gets you in touch with the ability of your voice and the range that is more than just this place where we speak and like, and like getting into that expansion that we have, we're fucking noisemakers and we get stuck in this, like I am a robot and I can only speak in these frequency ranges. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I am your host, Matt LeBlanc, and for over a decade after college, I lived with my very own smelly cat. Bang, bang. True story. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. We're talking to Gillian today. It was my very first time talking to her, actually, and I can't wait to do it again. She just lets you know exactly who she is right away. It's refreshing, and she definitely knows how to tell a good story. I grew up in a really super small, super white town in a beautiful nature-based childhood was awesome but also like very not a lot of access to like anything different than suburban Californian white upper middle class culture. Los Gatos, California. That's where her story starts but Gillian always seemed to have a curiosity for the bigger world even if she had never seen it before and from very early on she was already exploring ways to escape. 
I'd try to go dig to China in my sandbox or like collect bugs in my bug catcher. And I was just a super nature geek and like loved bugs and studying them and snakes. And I had hermit crabs and we always had pets and like lived in the, on the mountain. So like, you know, my life was very nature, but music was just like, Hey, we need you. Which brings us to her delusion. Music just moved me from the very beginning. My mom said I would sit under the church pew when we were like, had to go to church and whatever. Um, but I would just be under there like humming along to the music. The church part didn't resonate, but music, like a tentacle, immediately wrapped itself tightly around her heart. I think a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are on the quest of like finding our place in the world. Like, where do I fit in? You know, and a lot of people do find it in religion. They have church. That's amazing. I think that like, I like that about church that we went every Sunday and the regularity of it all. And like, you get to go to Sunday school and you get to have cookies after with your friends and like say hi to the people. Like, I love the community of it and even the messages, but there was just too much like Christian lingo around it. And I was just like, who is this God person anyway? <laughs> New branding, please. Yeah. And then all of a sudden music was like, ah! and I was like, oh, yes. And then all my people were around that were also attracted to the. Ah! It's so Blues Brothers. It's like the band, man. Like you get with the bands. Can you hear her story? You get with the band, man. The music is calling us. I knew since I knew what knowing was that I was going to sing in life. Like, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to sing. Singer, sing, whatever, whatever it's called. I wanted to sing songs. Can you hear the delusion deciding itself? I want to sing. No, I want to be a singer. I mean, I want to sing or same thing, but they're not. They're actually two different ideas to sing and to be a singer. And I knew every lyric to every song from like Grease and Annie Get Your Gun. We had an old player piano. We had a piano roll for the song Feelings. Feelings. Whoa, 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 feelings. Whoa, da, da, da. Like it's the saddest shit you've ever heard. And that would come on and I would just start bawling. Church was whatever. I mean, who is this God? But music, music could bring her to tears. That's powerful. I was on the planet to be like a massive singing superstar. It seems like the ego got involved and decided on the delusion for her. She wasn't just going to sing because it felt too good. It was too powerful. She was going to be a singer. Well, I was going to be the next Madonna. Is that what you thought that it meant was fame? Totally. I thought, oh, if I'm a singer, well, then I have to go be famous. And I have to go like be a superstar. Delusion! And that was her necessary delusion. It was the story that she wrote around this feeling that she loved so much. This feeling that she got when she sang. Whatever that was, that's what she wanted to do. And the way to do that was to become a super famous pop star like Madonna. To sing something was fun. To be a singer became her identity. When I was in high school, I heard Mariah Carey in her first album, and I just like blew my mind. I just gave my age away. When Gillian was in high school... This was the 1980s. <laughs> I was there the whole time. Anyway, these voices, you know, Michael Jackson, Prince and like MTV happened when I was like 10. So I was seeing all of that. And I'm they were dancing and singing and expressing and all like this culture and costumes and color and, you know, all this different than what I was used to. She was very used to nature life, living on the mountain in upper middle class white California that didn't have a lot of immediate access to anything different. Music started to feel like this porthole to the rest of the world. 
and it felt a lot more immediate than digging her way to China through a sandbox. And so I got some support at home, not a lot because nobody knew really what that meant to be like a singer. It just looked like something scary and far away. And and I think like as my parents being adults knew that like, you know, fame is, is a toxic environment and you really don't want to go there. See the difference in the delusions? To sing happens now. It happens right here. But to be a singer seemed scary and happened far away. But like so many of us, Gillian could not be told what to do. And her parents' feeling of worry was nothing compared to the power she felt through singing. And I was good at all the stuff. I'm a good dancer. I'm a good singer. I'm awesome on stage. Super good performer. I love a microphone. But more than that, I think it's the truth that I, I sought. And the truth in singing and that raw vulnerability that you have to walk into as a singer. Can you unpack that a little bit? The raw vulnerability of singing? Yeah. I mean, I got nervous and I still get nervous. And I think that that's good. I think that means we still care, you know, awareness that like, this is like something that makes me excited. And it's so, so personal. It's like the most insides of me. And I'm about to show them to people. Singing is so, it's like kombucha. It's live. <laughs> singing is live. It felt like this whole other part of herself. It felt like the most intimate part of herself, the most powerful. And it set her aside from everybody else. Because if you weren't in the band, then you were just talking. Really speaking is the same as singing. We're just not using all of our range of our voice and we don't go down to here. We're just stuck in the speak zone. That was the difference. While Gillian was getting in touch with her own raw vulnerability, everybody else, the rest of the world, was just stuck in the speak zone. A lot of people speak like this these days and they like fry on their chords. But like... Proper placement requires that we're like up on the vocal cords and and that my, you know, head is long in the back and my neck's not pushed forward that fucks with my voice too. Most human voices have like between a two and three octave natural range without training. That, that, this, this is the note that I usually talk in. That's kind of my speaking range. So that's like a... It's like a D. That was the rest of the world. And while they were all stuck in D, Gillian found access to this massive range inside of herself. We can speak and words are a thing, but like, you know, when you start to sing what you feel, it's totally fucking different. And it exposes this like different part of you, you know? And that is who Gillian found herself to be in the world. Totally fucking different. I was Madonna in high school. <laughs> I did all the talent shows. I choreographed all the people that couldn't dance. I made them do the dances. Um, I came up with cute skit ideas. Can you tell? She had a very strong idea of who she thought she was in high school. <laughs> Unfortunately, not everyone else saw her in the same way. But like I kind of got rejected by like I tried out for the national anthem, which actually now I'm glad it didn't get chosen. But they chose somebody who was like in the jazz choir or whatever. And at the time that hurt a little bit, which, of course, made her angry. Were they seriously going to choose some pedestrian from the jazz choir to sing the national anthem? Didn't they know she was going to be the next Madonna? I started taking voice lessons when I was 16, as soon as I could drive. And my voice teacher was this cheesy dude who was like, oh, we're going to get you on Star Search. And I'm like, okay, I guess. I mean, I would have done it, but I don't I don't know why I didn't or whatever. But I also like, like uh, that's so conforming too. That's like also not my personality. Like here I am telling all my teachers to fuck off, you know? 
Like, why am I going to go be all like, sure, Ed McMahon, fucking perv out on me. I'm some young girl. Oh, that was the other thing. That was a very vocal part of her story. She wasn't going to conform. How could she? She was the singer living in the speak zone. I didn't totally fit in. I also like got in all kinds of trouble. I was the youngest of three girls and I was the last one to like go through. We all went to the same high school, but I was a total troublemaker. And I was just like, fuck you, adult. Like, why do you get to tell me what to do? Just because you're some fucking adult. Like, I know, I know, I know. Okay. Don't talk to me like I don't know because I know. Delusion. So I got in all kinds of like sent to the dean. Like now, what did you do, Gillian? Our science teacher, freshman year, Mr. Verkyle, he was such a jerk. He was terrible. Just one of those crabby old guys who just didn't like what he was doing with his life. Ugh, Mr. Verkyle was totally stuck in the speak zone. I was also an asshole, so it was just a bad combination. In my experience, being an asshole made me a bad combination with most people, especially speak zone conformists like Mr. Verkyle. Uh, And I was talking to my friend and... The teacher came up and he was just like, stop talking, blah, blah, blah. And he was just all <laughs> angry and crabby. And I was like, okay, whatever, asshole. And he came back. He's like, what did you say to me? And I'm like, I said grasshole. I was talking about golf. Grasshole. She was talking about golf. And he's like, get out of my classroom. And I go into the dean's office. I think I'd already been caught for cheating that year or some shit. I don't know. Now he's like, hello, Gillian. And I'm like, hi. And he's like, says here you called Mr. Burkyle a grasshole because you were talking about golf. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And he's like, well, listen, in the like 20 whatever years I've been playing golf, I've never heard the term grasshole used. I'm going to guess that none of this even mattered because you were going to be the next Madonna. I mean, totally. And like, that's just also like my white privilege and my fucking rich people problems town that I grew up in. It's like, I knew that, fuck you, bro. Fuck you, asshole teacher. What are you going to do to me? You know, which is, like I said, it's very like white privilege to me, but it's also like good for me for being a young white woman flexing her shit to these fucking assholes who thought they could fucking like dictate my life or whatever. You know? Yeah, how dare you be crabby around me, teacher? Yeah, how dare you make me be in this stupid fucking system that I will not conform to? <laughs> I was actually being sarcastic, but do you see how squishy the delusion can be? Her attitude was total white privilege horseshit. And at the same time, good for her for standing up for herself. So, where did music take you after high school, and what lesson did you learn from it? I didn't learn a lesson for a long time. I wanted music so bad and I just didn't know how to get to it. I didn't know that there were conservatories you could go to. I didn't know there were performing arts high schools. Like I didn't know any of that shit. And so I was just kind of lost. And to be honest, like, I mean, I got a guitar when I turned 19 and Paraguay like went and bought this guitar, but I didn't know what to do with it. I took some guitar lessons when I was like 20 and I caught on really quick and I could sing and play at the same time, like right away. And my mom tried to put me in piano lessons when I was young, but you know, it was like these shitty lessons that they try to make you read music. And I just wanted to sing and like perform, you know? So it took me a minute. It took me a while. I went to the University of Montana my first year out of high school, which was kind of random. I met some of my best friends of my life there. And and I love Montana. It's fucking beautiful. But there's nothing going on there. Okay. Just like Los Gatos, where she was from. This couldn't be the world she was dreaming about. And then I went to Puerto Rico after that. And I, in between, I was in like Ecuador for the whole summer and like went to the Galapagos Islands, like just 
you know, life was like, yes, we're, the planet is amazing. Look at me. And so then after that, I, I quit school. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. I was really obsessed with Latin America and I was getting really good at Spanish and kept finding cool jobs all over Latin America. She got caught up in other delusions. Being a singer could wait. It reminds me of Jack Kerouac in On the Road when he goes to Mexico and falls in love. He knows he's getting sidetracked from his mission, but it feels so good being in love and the culture and his new delusion. Every day when he remembers his dream, he just tells himself, manana. My world was cracked open and Los Gatos all of a sudden was like, oh, that's like a pinpoint on the map and look at all this fucking culture that's out here and look at all these people. And I went to Guatemala when I was 16 and there wasn't, they were in civil war in the eighties, you know, it was fucking gnarly. It was people with guns all over. And I'm like, Hola, like I hardly spoke Spanish, but just like my head exploded after being out of America and seeing like, I literally can look back at that time and see how my mind and my heart just like expanded, not just knowing that other culture was out there, but like breathing it, tasting it, living in it. I lived with a Guatemalan family. I didn't speak any English. So like, it was my first time far away from home. So like all the while, as much as I wanted to be a singer and stuff, the world was also like, okay, but it's like bigger than that. So like, I wasn't totally getting the message, but off I was stumbling on my way and I finally learned guitar so that I could just accompany myself to sing because that's like, okay, well, if I can do this. And then I got with this voice coach through a friend of a friend and he was a classical coach and he taught me classical and he was like, dude, your voice is fucking built for this. Like your voice is fucking huge and powerful and talk about tuning your voice. The first time I hit like an opera note with like fat vibrato, I was just like, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Holy shit. And talk about feeling power and like just the whole, like the way your body resonates. When you hear what the, the human voice is capable of from inside your own body is just like, whoa. But then, you know, I turned into my 20s and <clears throat> life was hard <laughs> and shit was just like there was no path to Madonna. And I was so distracted, too, by like drugs and sex and the world and Puerto Rico and like all these fucking <laughs> dope ass life adventures that were just heartbreaking and fun and like everything in between. Certainly one of the most delusional decades of our lives, I think, right? Our 20s. And it's partly what makes them so great and partly what makes them so unnecessarily stressful. Exactly. Like I said, there's no pathway to these dreams. Like you have all these dreams as a young person and then you get out into the world and then it's like, oh, and it like spits on you and it's like mm, door in your face slammed shut. And you were like, but wait, I thought I was special and I really had something here. <laughs> And then life is like, nah, I've got different plans for you, actually. But keep singing, <laughs> you know, don't stop. Right. And I didn't. She went back to Los Gatos, back to her parents' house, back to the speak zone. Because maybe she'd gotten so caught up trying to be Madonna that there was something left to be learned in the speak zone. And my self-esteem was shit. I was a nanny for these triplets who actually that was like, they brought me back to life 100%. Just with like getting back to like, oh, yeah flowers and just going and playing at the beach. I remember now kind of like re-merged with my soul that I was so separated from for like your whole preteen and teenage and early 20s. I mean, I feel like they definitely got me back into that soul connection of just 
what the whole point of life is, which is like raspberries and sandcastles. I was in a blues band too that whole time with Archie Lee Hooker, who was like John Lee Hooker's nephew. And I was hanging out with John Lee Hooker and like the whole blues crew that was in the Bay Area. So that was pretty cool. But still, like, didn't really, I mean, I did some recordings, like we wrote a little bit, but didn't really lead anywhere. Did some gigs, that was cool, but uh, uh, yeah, that whole searching for, like, that path then after that, like, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to school. And I went back to opera school, which was not my jam. Opera school didn't turn out to be exactly what she wanted, but it was music, and she got through it. I finally graduated college. And then, like, again, just life was like, look at me. I'm so shiny and fun. And, like, I met this great guy, and we bought a sailboat together. And then we went off sailing in the Caribbean for three years. I'm sorry. Did you think she was going to buckle down and start playing gigs consistently and brand herself with something super on trend and become the next Madonna? (laughs) No. Because that was just the part of her delusion that was ego. Just the idea of what she thought it meant to be a singer. In reality... It was truth she was searching for. Life was just like, no, I'm going to just blow you off this course a little bit that you were so on. The plan was around the world. We were going around the world on our trimaran, our 33-foot trimaran. Obviously, the delusion about the sailboat was the ultimate. Around the world. We are 33 feet long, and we are going to conquer the ocean. Where our whole boat weighed like 7,000 pounds. In this corner, weighing in at 7,000 pounds, we have Gillian and her boyfriend, with virtually no sailing experience, in a tiny boat. And in this corner, weighing in at 6.585 billion trillion tons, I googled it, we have the world. Delusion, yeah. But why did the plan have to be to sail around the whole world? Because it sounded good? Because it made the trip feel bigger and more important somehow? Maybe because planning to take a few years to sail down around the Caribbean would have changed the whole spirit of the mission. I don't have the real answer. Gillian didn't get into that. But I have used the delusion of the ultimate countless times myself. And it always felt completely necessary. Because I don't always deal well in the nuance. Lots of times it seems like things either need to be all or nothing. Like I can either single-handedly take on the entire world or not do anything at all. We started in Fort Pierce, Florida, which is like a little bit above uh, like Fort Lauderdale. And then we made it to Grenada. And that's the South Caribbean. That's as far as we got. That's as far as they got in three years. We went slow. We stayed a, a long time in the Bahamas and then we went to Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic and hopped our way down that whole West Indian chain. Not exactly the whole world, but definitely the trip of a lifetime. And even though they had planned to sail so much more, as it turned out, they really hadn't planned very well at all. Because hurricane season, like you have to hole up for like eight months. Sailing season is really only four or five months a year. And we're trimaran, which means we're very lightweight. So we're heavily affected by weather. So it becomes a whole like we just hung out a lot. You know, you're at anchor. Most of the time you're sailing on a sailboat, you're just at anchor. But as it turned out, hanging out at Anchor could be a lot of fun, too. She and her boyfriend, John, were in love, and they were living in paradise. It was like the first boyfriend I really had in my life that was like a good dude and really took care of me. And like we lived together and, you know, it was like my first like real boyfriend. And he's just one of the kindest people on the whole entire planet. It was the time of her life, the pinnacle for any travel junkie. But music still rattled around like a little lost kernel in the back of her mind. 
I was actually making my album, my first album, all the while oh. on this boat experience. So I was kind of doing stuff. But what does that all... look like making an album on a boat? Well, I'd recorded all the music already in LA, like before we got on the boat. And then I was just back and forth with the guy who was producing it. Um, and he was doing all the recording of the instruments and like hiring all the other musicians and mixing and mastering and all of that. Sounds like making the album had some delusional elements to it as well. I may be projecting, but my adult life has been littered with promising creative projects that I was working on. Delusion! And delusions are just built into the nature of some of these projects because they do move slow and you're collaborating with people, sometimes people that are unreliable or that you don't know very well, or there's no money, or it's everyone's side hustle. It's like, hey, my producer is super talented and committed. He totally believes in the project. He's just really, really busy because he has a full-time job and three kids. And we were going back and forth. Like, I, you know, I wasn't just on the boat for three years. Like, my boyfriend's dad died. We went home for that. Like, you know, life is happening all the while. And so I went back, and that's when I picked up my CDs, and then I brought him back on the boat, and I was trying to, like, be fucking Jimmy Buffett or something. Like, I don't know. Living on a boat full of CDs. I don't quite get the Jimmy Buffett reference, but it sounds like delusions I've lived before. Hey, look, look, I know it sounds crazy, but hear me out. If you think about it, this boat is actually the perfect place to launch my singing career from. Have you seen my giant pile of CDs? Delusion. Oh, and I left off when I was on the boat. I had an appendicitis and we were in the middle of nowhere and he like sailed me to a hospital. We were on this tiny island and the people at the clinic were like, oh, you're constipated. I'm like, duh. (laughs) (laughs) It hurts though. What's wrong with me? They're like, we don't know. We only have an x-ray machine. We're like, oh my God. And so he kind of saved my life in a big way because I didn't know what was wrong with me. Needless to say, she and John had gotten really close, going through so many highs and lows together. Living on a boat sounds like a dream. It sounds like a bucket list item for anyone in their 20s or their 60s and 70s who feel like it's time to sail off into the sunset. And according to Gillian, that is not very far from reality. I was like in my late 20s, like retired and like bored on my boat. I'm on the boat bored and I'm in the boat bored. It was cool, but it was like, oh, another beautiful sunset. And like, oh, I feel seasick again. Their relationship had started to suffer as well with the passing of each gorgeous, unappreciated sunset. The 33 feet that she and John occupied together seemed to get smaller and smaller. The pile of unopened CDs seemed to get bigger, and her dream of being a singer had never seemed further away. They were stopped on land in... La República Dominicana. Dominican Republic. We were living there, actually, for hurricane season. We were staying at a hotel because our boat was, like, far away, and I was like, I want to go to the DR Jazz Fest. Like, we're here, we got to go. So we, I think we rented a car... And got a hotel like in the the town because it was in a bigger town than we were living in. And then we got tickets and we went and I was just sitting there in awe. It was like a small place. There was maybe like, I don't know, a few hundred people there. And and we were had like decent seats. We were kind of in the middle where I feel like they were folding chairs even like it was Dominican Republic. So it's like pretty low key. I'm pretty sure it was just a quartet. They sat in anticipation in folding chairs in the dark in silence. The quartet illuminated down in front on the stage. Cubans just throwing down so fucking hard, dude. The checkaday, you know what a checkaday is? It's like mm-hmm. gourd that's covered in like a lace beads sound. The guy that was playing that was, oh God, he was so good. He was just so groovy. But fuck, the band sounded so good. 
Chucho Valdez, the Cuban jazz legend, sat in front of the piano. Chucho Valdez is this like super tall Cuban dude who's kind of light skinned um, and he's got these giant hands that you can see him from the stage. Giant hands effortlessly exploring the keyboard and always finding the perfect note. And I was just sitting there watching them being like, God, I just want to be up there. And as she got lost in the rhythm of the music, mesmerized by the band and Chucho's giant hands, this familiar little faraway voice came back telling her favorite story. I, I was imagining what I would be singing because I could speak Spanish really well by that point. And so I was like, you know, up there putting on this in my head, like, yo estoy aquí para cantar, and like all this shit. <laughs> like just, I was there with them. I had put myself on the stage with them in my mind and was totally holding it down, like had the chops. I was doing it. And they were like, right on, white girl. Um, I also felt a lot of- You started singing? No, just like in my head, I in, mentally, I was like, had put myself up there. Her story was so convincing, even I got confused. And they were supporting your ability They were like, oh, this girl can hang with us, right on. <laughs> the fantasy was vivid, and it revealed this old truth that she hadn't let herself look at for at least three years. I saw them up on that stage, just locked in with each other, and I'm like, fuck, I have that potential, like... I am that rhythmically sound. Like I, my relationship with music is so tight, you know, like that same time I sang that opera note and felt that like, wow, I have all this potential. I invested now 15 years at that point. I had invested in learning about music. As the lights came up at the end of the show, it was as if the light poured back into Gillian's eyes. The auditorium erupted with applause and she soaked in the sound. Not only like she had witnessed the performance, but like the applause was a celebration for the power of music itself. She remembered. She and John shuffled their way down the row of seats, her whole body buzzing. But the evening wasn't over yet. Then they had a Q&A after. And so I went and got to like talk to Chucho Valdez, which is like a big, I mean, he's one of the best Cuban piano players of all history, you know? And so I said, like, who's your your piano god that you just like totally look up to? And he said, Bill Evans. And he's so melodic and the balance he has between his hands and the way he treats song. Like, you know, he just went into this whole explanation of why he loved Bill Evans, which I, of course, love Bill Evans too as jazz nerd. And then, uh, and then I shook his hand. And his hands, as I said, were so big. My hand was like, was like a doll hand inside of his. Like his fingers were just like tree logs, like just four of them in a row. And they were just, the palm of his hand was like three feet long, I feel like. And like my hand just disappeared in his. I mean, he was just kind and beautiful and just serving music. He's not in the way at all, you know? And so that was like starting to teach me a little bit too about that like fame is not anything. It's actually about embodying music, serving this music and these grooves. And After three years on the boat, music was reaching out, embodied by Chucho Valdez's brilliant hands. And they were pulling Gillian back into the delusion. So then I, we left. We left there and we went back to the hotel and I just sat out on the, the balcony with my feet up on this couch, kind of slumped down. And I was smoking a joint and I was just like, just heaviness. Like this weight came over me. I can feel that weight, the weight of her decisions, the one she had already made and all the rest that were laid out in front of her, calling out to her like a chorus of crickets from the darkness telling her a story. Everything in my body was like, you gotta 
you got to go to that stage. You got to go somewhere where you're going to be closer to not only that stage, but the people on that stage and people that have dedicated their lives so hard to music that they are that good. And I went into like this deep depression and I was like, being on this boat is not getting me any closer to that stage. And I want to be on a stage. I want to do music. I don't know if I'm going to be famous, but I know that I want to be music. Do I want to be music. I am music. I am music. And famous was starting to like, you know, the older you get, the more you're like, well, maybe that's maybe a really toxic environment. Maybe that's why I didn't end up there because I probably couldn't have handled it. I probably would have died. I probably would have done heroin and that would have been it for me because <laughs> I love the feel good stuff. <laughs> that seems like a big moment. It was because it got me off the boat. I'm like, and I need to get off this boat. I need to go back to mainland and like go somewhere where music is happening, where I can go get closer to this level of musicianship. And as if something bigger than her had heard her wish, the physical world began to get in sync with the fantasy. But not only did I realize I had to get off the boat, my body was like, bitch, you better get off this boat like right now. And my back like went all crooked on me. And I was in like the most excruciating physical pain of my life. So that led to me even more so going like, I can't, I can't be on this boat. Like my body literally is like rejecting this whole experience. I don't know about you, but I absolutely believe that our bodies project these delusions. Granted, I have mild scoliosis and my spine is legitimately crooked, but I have found that there is a direct connection between my stress levels i.e. my negative thoughts and unnecessary delusional pressure that I put on myself, and the health, strength, and comfortability of my back. Also, I've been known to like break out in stress hives, weird swelling, diarrhea. I'll stop there. So I went back to Santa Cruz, California. My boyfriend dealt with the boat. Then the boat got hit by a hurricane, and we're like, and we're done. <laughs> Um, and we owned it. We, it wasn't a very expensive boat, so we just sold it and we kind of broke even. After having freshly sold off the old delusion and breaking even, she had pulled herself out of retirement and she was ready to come back to the world and sing. And then my boyfriend got cancer. I was on my way to L.A. in a car going to a DIY make your music known to the world festival and literally turned back around and just went home to take care of my cancer ridden boyfriend. Um, and it was just like, felt like, like I broke down in this major, like sad, happy. I was super in love with this person. And not only was I in love with them, but I loved them. Like I was just devastated that he had cancer and, and we were actually like not in the greatest way in our relationship. And I was kind of questioning if I really wanted to be with him or what the fuck I wanted. Like I was, you know, early 30s, like all over the place, didn't know what the fuck I wanted. And then I, my body decided for me and it was like, we're going to go help take care of your, your really good friend who loves the shit out of you. And we're going to support him while he's sick. And we're going to, we're going to get over this together or whatever, be supportive for whatever happens. So I did. I turned my car back around. I never went to that conference. And I just started like research mode of like, what is this and how do we fix it? I imagine that cancer is the kind of turning point that can wake most of us up from a lot of our delusions in an instant. The kind of clarity that just lets the fantasies fall away. 
and can leave you with a very sobering list of priorities. Which taught me so much about health and our bodies was a big lesson for both of us. And How then, long did you take care of him for? It was like two years of him, you know, he did radiation and like some surgery and, you know, it was rough. It was a lot. With your back against the wall in this kind of situation, there's only one delusion left that's necessary to drive you every day. We're going to get through this. Um, Hard for everybody, but really like beautiful connection and like felt really good to like care for somebody like that because he cared for me so much, you know. So that that was good. That was good for both of us to like take care of each other. So we kind of saved each other's lives in a lot of ways. They got through it. And suddenly they were able to think about what direction they wanted to take their lives in again. He's like, I want to surf big waves. And I'm like, I want to sing music. I'd been taking classes at the community college. I was playing the upright bass like a badass, singing my ass off, jazz, classical, blues, pop, whatever. I was writing songs. Like, everything was great. She was bursting. The music had been restrained for long enough, put off for years by travel and sex and drugs and Puerto Rico. Three years on the boat and then two years taking care of John. It was time to follow the music. So I went and visited my friend in New York and fell in love. Like she totally did all the things that made me fall in love with New York. And, you know, I sat in at jazz jams and like, you know, I tasted New York for the first time in my life. And uh, what did New York taste like? Oh, just music everywhere. Music, art, you could be whoever you wanted to be. There were people of color everywhere. There was 20 different languages spoken while you walked down the street. Like everything that Los Gatos was never going to ever, ever, ever have. New York is no speak zone. She's got range. And so one thing led to another and I was like, I'm going to go live in New York for like three months. I'm going to check it out. Her boyfriend offered to drive her. They packed up her upright base in a bag of clothes and she found a place to live on Craigslist while sitting in an internet cafe. And she loved it. She started hanging out and going to jazz jams. And then like 15 years later, (laughs) it was still there. John and I eventually kind of broke up. Took us a couple years to finally like move on. But we just wanted different things. And I was just like on my music path. You said that music's there to teach us everything, I think is what you said. Yeah. If you're in tune to what she's trying to do for us, it's to connect with each other. It's to first connect with yourself. Right. Get in that space where you can be in the now and you're not thinking about your past or your future. Every time I'm practicing scales or like in the music zone is the same place I try to get to when I'm meditating. How my fingers are positioned, how the notes supposed to sound. Awareness is what makes people good musicians because you're listening first. Even there's been times where I haven't played my instruments for like months because I'm like depressed or I broke my heart or my back hurts or I didn't ever get to be famous the way that I thought I was supposed to. But music is always like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm here for you whenever you want. Music is like a dog that just lays on its back. She's like, I'm happy that you're keeping me alive. We're here to like serve music. Singing has become this separate thing. Like, oh, I gotta go be a singer. When in fact, if you listen to a baby, the whole first year of their life, they're just vocalizing which to me is what singing is, is vocalizing. And it's not about fame. It's about this awareness creation. And even beyond that, have a safe space, like with a music teacher that like has no judgment. It's just like your biggest cheerleader and just wants people to find this connection with music. Gillian is that music teacher. She lives in Spain now. 
She went to the Berklee School of Music over there, and she speaks Spanish and sings like she's totally fucking different, and she's teaching other people how to do it too. She's actually opening her own music school for blind children, and I am so excited for her, and a little jealous of the kids, because her energy and her passion are infectious, and the story that she tells is compelling. Having this early morning conversation with her was truly one of the very best ways that I can start my day, and I would not say that about just anyone. I want to thank Gillian for her story today and for the much-needed reminder of this range that I have inside of me that I don't explore enough. (laughs) And yes, that felt very vulnerable to do. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can send us 143 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo or write us a review wherever you're listening, particularly on Apple Podcasts, that's a purple podcast app, would be great. If you want to join the conversation, we do have a voicemail that you can call with feedback on an episode. You can leave us a three-minute delusion that I can play here or send me your contact information to set up a time to tell a story of your own. That number is 323-540-4540. Or you can email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. I play bass. So I'm a rhythm section person. I mean, my singing is, you know, sits in a, in a pocket also, but being on the bass and really sitting with the drummer and like feeling a, a pocket and like having that unspoken connection, right? I can walk into a room where none of us speak the same spoken language and we can sit down in a room and, and jam and not have to say one word to each other. So it's carries that same vocabulary weight and the depth of studying the language gets you a pass into sitting in a room with Chucho Valdez and like being able to hang with him musically and have the like confidence to do it. Just like, as if you like went out into the streets, I live in Spain, go out into the streets and like speak Spanish with the people. It's like, Oh, I can, I can get around here because I can talk to everybody. So it's like, it opens doors. It connects you to people. Like that's the power of music.